This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Young Turks, Counterspin, Jim Hightower, On the Media, The David Pakman Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and The Progressive with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Here is your first quote. It's clear the country's talking to itself. And it's clear that across the country, people are saying, you know, I think we need Newt Gingrich. (laughs) That was somebody offering a daring bit of political analysis. Who believes that the country really needs Newt Gingrich? I think there's only one person, and that would be Newt Gingrich. (laughs) It would be! (laughs) I think... I think... I think you're, you, should get, you should get two points because you're right. There's one person who thinks that, and it is Newt Gingrich. Instead of Mitt Romney, a guy who really, really, really wants to be president, the GOP at last is turning to a guy who thinks he's too good to be president. Gingrich once described himself as, quote, an advocate of civilization, definer of civilization, teacher of the rules of civilization, and leader, possibly, of the civilizing forces, unquote. He's not a politician. He's Gandhi with a weight problem. (laughs) I was was about to say, he's done, that's Charlton Heston's whole career. Right there, (laughs) running through the movie then. Well, you know what's what's bad is that now it's down to two people, right? Pretty much. So you have to say Mitt or Newt, because you can't say Newt or Mitt. (laughs) Newt or Mitt. That would, think, uh, that would be redundant, kid. I, 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 yeah, I think it's I, happened already. I was going to yeah. say, I think the base has already done that. Yeah. It sounds like a catch span release program. Yeah. <laughs> Newt, Newt Gingrich has such an incredibly inflated idea of who he is. Who could be his running mate? We're guessing he'll decide the only person who could step into his shoes if he should fail would be himself. He'll be his own vice president. And he will announce that if he were to die in office, he shall rise again after three days. <laughs> Or maybe he will take a rib from his own body and shape a companion for Newt. Someone who will, someone who will always gaze upon him worshipfully, but who will not demand expensive jewelry in return. This yeah. The only flaw in that vice presidential plan, Peter, yeah. is that about five years afterwards, he's going to find a better-looking rib on the other side. Straight <laughs> up. Can we spare a moment of pity, though, for poor Mitt Romney? He has been trying for so long, eight years of sucking up to the Republican base now, trying to make himself the perfect candidate, and right before the Iowa caucuses, they all break for Newt Gingrich. Romney must be like, I stayed faithful to my wife for 42 years for this. He's like, to hell with it, and he immediately started chugging Jack Daniels and moved his campaign headquarters to a brothel in Tijuana. If he did that, he would rocket to, like, number one. Yeah. He totally would. I would yeah. love to see that. I think he has to, like, proposition a woman on the street. And yeah. Get there, some there, really, what's going on? Is the Republican base like, I don't know, Romney, one wife. Has he been tested? Look out, man, because she comes
I'm leaving with a broken heart, you're leaving with a bleeding nose. Here comes Ron Paul off the top rope, on top of Gingrich's head! Newt Gingrich was a career politician, selling access here in Washington, D.C. The year that he ran for Congress in 1978, he made a grand total of $10,000. By the time he became the speaker, he made $675,000. By the time he left Congress, he's brought his net worth up to about $7.5 million. 84 ethics complaints while he was speaker, driven out of the speakership in disgrace. Having to pay $300,000 for lying, for complete fraud. And I have lots of things to do. Maybe earn a little bit of money. New King Rich is also the latest example of how the corrupt revolving door drives Washington. Made $100 million playing the revolving door game. A big part of that is just lobbying money. Congress is, is really bought and sold. They're bought and sold legally. If you've been Speaker of the House, you're always an insider. Gingrich received up to $1.8 million from Freddie Mac just before it collapsed. His think tank's got $37 million bucks from the healthcare industry. Newt Gingrich renewed his support for an individual mandate, a key tenet of President Obama's health care law. Newt Gingrich has been on both sides of a long list of issues. He went the other way when he got paid to go the other way. Do you think voters are going to like warm up to you because you're boasting about getting $60,000 as speech i was charging sixty thousand dollars a speech normally celebrities leave and they gradually sell fewer speeches every year we were selling more he is the absolute symbol of that corrupt system newt gingrich this guy hasn't got skeletons in his closets he's got a whole graveyard in there it's about serial hypocrisy oh damn here comes the doctor First ad against him was awfully tough when he went after Gingrich and he hit him with a two by four. And as Gingrich was bleeding from the ear a little bit, he turned around and the doctor hit him with a chair. Well, sick there. So Gingrich is really look. Okay, in our little theater, he's really in the real world. He's not. He's crushing in the polls. So of course, the real question is: Is this going to have an effect? How many people are going to see it? Is it going to affect how they view him? Uh, look, there was one inaccuracy in there that we've got to point out. The salaries that they quoted for Gingrich were wrong. Uh, so about the 675000 they said when he came into office is actually what he had when he left office as far as net worth is uh, concerned. But later, he did make $37 million through his uh, health care lobbying uh, that he says, well, I didn't make that money. My company made that money. It's a very, very small distinction. So yes, later Newt Gingrich made millions on top of millions. But when you look at the entirety of this ad and the first ad that Ron Paul ran against them, if, the, uh, if enough people see it, will it damage Gingrich? It should, because he's right. Uh, you know, when you put aside that one inaccuracy, the rest of it is entirely right. Newt Gingrich is an enormous establishment guy, is an enormous hypocrite, totally for the individual mandate before he was against it, for cap and trade before he was against it. In fact, we've got more stories today uh, on hypocrisy on child labor laws, on Yasser Arafat, and it goes on and on and on. And he's a lobbyist. That's what he is. He made a tremendous amount of money selling access. Okay, So that's the guy that conservatives are going to turn to, to be an outsider, a kind of Tea Party guy, a real conservative, to what? to change the system? Are you kidding me? Newt Gingrich is the system. He's the very model of corruption within that system. So I think Ron Paul has done some hard-hitting ads here that I think are effective if enough people see them. And we'll have to see if it damages Gingrich's in the polls 
Uh, and that's a real solid question that I'm looking forward to seeing how it resolves itself. A long December, and there's reason to believe maybe this year will be better than the last. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. It's hard to know exactly what to make of the New York Times' November 29th piece on Republican candidate Newt Gingrich as the smartest candidate in the room. Reporter Trip Gabriel seems to mean it when he writes, quote, In an election season rife with factual misstatements, deliberate and otherwise, Mr. Gingrich sometimes seems to stand out for exhibiting an excess of knowledge, close quote though who knows what an excess of knowledge might be, or whether he's suggesting Gingrich is smart or just smarter than, say, Michelle Bachman. The piece includes some critics of Gingrich's credentials as an historian, but it seems sincere in concluding that, quote, fellow historians are generally pleased that Mr. Gingrich brings history into the national conversation, even if some dispute his insights, close quote. But then no fellow historians are found to respond to Gingrich's claim that the U.S. spends less on its military as a percentage of GDP than at any time since Pearl Harbor, for example, or his insight that the stimulus bill was anti-Christian legislation that would stop church groups from holding meetings in public schools. Look at this. The Republican Party does have a presidential candidate who's not a far-right goofball, a product of Wall Street banksters, a tripped-out cokehead, or a yee-hawing BSer from Texas. Because of what this contender is not, and of what he is, you've probably never heard of him, and chances are quite good that he'll not be the GOP nominee. But Buddy Romer should be listened to and ought to be the nominee of some party because he's making a heap of sense. Not only is he daring to speak truth to power, but truth about power. The central issue, says this former member of Congress and former Republican governor of Louisiana, is, quote, the corruptive power of big money in campaigns. It's about the big checks and special interests, and it's Democrat and Republican. 
The political and media establishment have responded to such rare honesty and blunt talk with blanket coverage of Romer's campaign, by which I mean they've thrown a heavy blanket over him, hoping he'll neither be seen nor heard by voters who might actually like what he's saying. He's not been allowed in any of the GOP's presidential debates, for example, even though his 1% to 2% showing in the polls is slightly better than that of John Huntsman, who has been consecrated as a serious candidate by the political cognoscenti. Here's a little sampler of Romer's ideas. I would have a rule that lobbyists could not give a check to a candidate, that PACs could give no more than individuals, that there'd be no super PACs, and, he adds, I would have a rule that there would be criminal penalties for violation of these rules. This is Jim Hightower saying, this guy might actually be the people's buddy. Wouldn't you like to see Rick, Mitt, Michelle, and the rest have to deal with him in debates? To learn more, go to www.buddyromer.com. That's buddyromer, R-O-E-M-E-R.com. progressives uh, go with Ron Paul, or at least consider it, right? And let me just lay out the first case here. On civil liberties, I think clearly better than President Obama, because he, the Defense Authorization Act, uh, you know, he's uh, against that. On uh, wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, better than the president, better than most Democrats, etc. Now, there's a counter case to be made. Ben, I, I'm going to let you make that first. Well, I'll start it. I, I sense others may, may join in. I, I, yeah, he's better on civil liberties. He's worse than any candidate in the race, except maybe Rick Santorum, on civil rights. He's atrocious on civil rights. He's an embarrassment on civil rights. Nobody who cares about equality and moving this country forward in any kind of progressive way would even consider voting for Ron Paul in a billion years. Well, you know, but you've got to back that up, because a lot of people might not know what you're referencing. Well, first of all, he's been closely aligned uh, with the John Birch Society for some time. The John Birch Society, of course, uh, one of the co-founders, has a couple of boys named the Koch brothers. Um, yeah. uh, he speaks regularly at the John Birch Society, which has been uh, described, I, I think, fairly leniently as uh, nutty and wildly right-wing and out of step with the rest of America. Right. And then there was the newsletters that Ron Paul's he, organization sent out a long time he ago. He says he didn't write them, but if you read that stuff, I mean, it's some of the most horrible stuff in the world order was restored in Los Angeles after the riots when it came time for the blacks to pick up their welfare checks three days after rioting began. He says he didn't write it, but stuff like that, tons of stuff like that went out under his name. He said he didn't write it, and I think he's gotten a relatively free pass from the right. press on it. Katie, what do you think here? He's good on some stuff, obviously really bad on other stuff. I mean, I think if you are a straight white man who wants to drink raw milk, Ron Paul is your candidate. Tell me more. I mean, who will speak for the right to drink unpasteurized milk? Ron Paul will. But um, I, I do think you. that I do think that what's interesting is that he is like. I mean, I'll I'll tweet sometimes that 
I've just fallen in love again with Ron Paul because he'll say things that are great. He said he what he says. I personally think that his position on Israel is very refreshing. Now right. it may not be so much about Palestinian self determination. There may be a little anti semitism in there. Um, <laughs> right. And I don't say just, that usually. I don't play that card. But I think with Ron Paul, I'm gonna you know I assume he's equal opportunity bigoted and he's definitely racist. So I'm gonna assume <laughs> there's some anti semitism. So, um, so listen, uh, you know, I'm getting the vibe so far that you guys aren't buying it, yeah, right? It's a no. but, but I hear, but look, God, you know, when I hear my civil liberties, again, Ari, he's so much better than the establishment Democrats. When I hear him on the wars, and the list goes on and on, I'm almost 50% of the stuff, he's better than the Democrats. And right now, what's our choices? To go with the Democrats who's going to do the same exact thing? So I'm going to give you the last word. What's your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, he, yeah, he, he might be, he's like Dennis Kucinich meets Paul Ryan, though. That's the problem. He has these progressive stance on civil liberties, and he has these progressive stance on foreign policy, but he's incredibly conservative on economic policy, on yeah. civil rights, as Ben said. He's basically a Buchananite paleoconservative. He wants to get rid of Social Security. He wants to get rid of Easy Medicare. Choice. He wants to get rid of Medicaid. He, he wants to get rid of progressive taxation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, he's tantalizing, but I don't think you should fool progressives into, into thinking that he is a guy that is, really is, will speak to progressive points of view on a whole range of issues. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. we are on the precipice of next month's Iowa caucus, you'd think that the good people of Iowa and New Hampshire would be drowning in political advertising. Yet, in comparison with 2007 at least, their airwaves are eerily quiet. Earlier this week, the New York Times reported that for a variety of reasons, including the fact that just Republicans are competing in this year's primaries, ad buys are down in those states way down. Campaigns and political groups spent almost $22 million in Iowa by this point in 2007. This year, they've spent only $2.4 million. Instead, it seems free media have filled the void. First among them, the televised debate. Welcome to the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, the site of our Republican presidential debate. Speaker Gingrich, this next one's for you. You criticized extending unemployment benefits, uh, saying that you were, quote, opposed to giving people money for doing nothing. Benefits have already been extended. The idea that you stand here before us and talk about that you're strong on immigration is on its face 
the height of hypocrisy. The governor says, look, states ought to be able to opt out of Social Security. Our, our nominee has to be someone who, who isn't committed to abolishing Social Security, but who's committed to, to saving Social Security. We have always had at the heart of our party. Uh, I don't think he knows what he's talking about in that, in that regard. Kathleen Hall Jameson, a professor and longtime analyst of political media, says you should consume your debates. They're good for you. When a good reporter does an extended interview with a candidate, you don't simply learn what the candidate wants to tell you. You learn what the candidate tells you after being confronted with tough questions. Well, the candidates are relentlessly on message. They turn every question, no matter what the topic, back into their set of talking points. What you learn about Governor Perry when, for an entire debate, he kept moving back to energy policy, no matter what he was asked, was that he may not have the range of expertise required to answer those questions yet. What you learn when the candidates on the Republican stage are asked, would you take 10 times spending cuts to one times tax increase, and they say no, you know the position of the entire Republican field and how it differs from the Obama administration. You know across the debates that these candidates oppose the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which they call call Obamacare. You can't learn all of that in advertising. So do you see any value in political advertising? I mean, in terms of instructing the electorate? Yes, no question. Advertising in general contains accurate, not inaccurate statements. I'm surprised. That's historically true. And I tell you that having spent more hours than I would care to count analyzing claim by claim in the ads, but that doesn't mean that there aren't serious deceptions in them. That's why we need a lot of good journalism wrapped around this political process. It was interesting. The ratings for the early debates, at least, were pretty high. Were they higher than usual? We tend to have higher attention to politics when the nation feels anxious, also when they're unhappy with the incumbent. But the ratings have lagged. They tend to over time, but the fact that we had the early spike and that we have respectable ongoing levels is good news. Candidates focused, for example, in one debate solely on foreign policy, another debate solely on economic matters. Your level of knowledge about these candidates has risen substantially if you've paid even reasonable attention. You know, the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision has resulted in a Mount Everest of cash. What do you think led us to this moment where money is not dominating the media environment? The opportunity to participate in the debates early said to candidates, I can reach my intended audience without expending ad dollars. You would not have seen Speaker Gingrich emerge as a candidate or Mr. Cain emerge as a candidate. Both of those candidacies driven by debate performances. They weren't doing very much advertising. In fact, in Gingrich's case, he wasn't doing any. Well, these are glorious days for democracy. (laughs) Well, let's just say better than some others. Doesn't it have something to do with the fact that there were so many GOP candidates that people were keeping their money off the table? No, we've had this number in fields before. Hmm. Um, I think what was accounting for it is the fact that you had the venues and they were attracting the audience. Are you expecting an explosion of advertising in the coming months? Yes. We're going to see so much advertising that you will turn on the golf channel and find ads. You'll turn on your channels that ordinarily would never see a political presence, and there they will be. Indeed, they're going to have to figure out how to put money into advertising on people's backs in order to spend all of their money. (laughs) 
You know, you talk a lot about interviews, but these are GOP candidates. And where we've seen the preponderance of interviews is on Fox News. Do you really think that the public is getting bang for that particular buck? This week, we saw extended interviews by Wolf Blitzer on CNN of Governor Perry and of Speaker Gingrich. Good, tough questions, very clear follow-up. Governor Perry's answers, for example, on Israel are going to create real controversy. Certainly, Brett Baer got into a tussle with Romney on Fox News. That was a good interview by Brett Baer. You also saw a very strong interview by Bill O'Reilly of Governor Perry the week that Governor Perry had put up an ad that took out of context a statement by President Obama. In the ad, Governor Perry says that President Obama says Americans are lazy. Bill O'Reilly said that wasn't what he's referring to, was it? Wasn't he referring to government agencies? He also asked him to defend his position that President Obama is a socialist. I think that we ought to be open to the possibility that Fox journalistic norms will hold Republican candidates accountable. And those of us who may not be inclined to watch Fox might be well served by watching those interviews. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Kathleen Hall Jameson is the head of the Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania and director of Fact Check and the new website flackcheck.org. Jameson is not alone in detecting a new tougher approach to GOP candidates from Fox News Channel. Gabriel Sherman, a contributing editor at New York Magazine, says the less kind, less gentle interviewing of Republican hopefuls is in part a marketing strategy conceived by Fox News chairman and CEO Roger Ailes. What Roger Ailes has successfully done is allowed this Republican primary to take place almost entirely on Fox News. The candidates show up in the morning on Fox and Friends. They do interviews during the day. They appear in the prime time at night. They've allowed candidates a platform to air their proposals, critics would say without scrutiny, but they've also knocked them around. For Fox News to move center, it first has to have been on the right. The daily marching orders from editorial management, uh, previously John Moody, now Bill Salmon, has been in lockstep with the messaging of uh, uh, the Republican National Committee. And these are marching orders not for the punditry, but for the news side of the organization. From my sources at the network, Bill Salmon's presence has been very controversial. And in fact, there's journalists inside Fox News who have been uncomfortable with Salmon's hands-on and unsubtle uh, attempts to steer coverage rightward. This gets to the heart of what the network is trying to do now. For a bit of context, it's really important to look at the fact that prior to the Obama election, Fox News's ratings were down considerably. And so, you know, Roger Ailes looked at the landscape in 2008 and said, what can I do to re-energize conservatives and increase ratings on my network? And he hired a whole stable of former Republican candidates and politicians. Those decisions created an environment where Fox News tapped into this populist fervor that was sweeping the country and ratings exploded. Fox News became a active participant in the storyline that was developing from 2008 through the 2010 midterms that there was this populist, anti-government, anti-Obama movement sweeping the country. That achieved what Roger Ailes had wanted, which was to revive the network and dominate the cable news ratings race, which translates into roughly uh, about a billion dollars in profit annually. 
What changed his mind and made him drift at least in the direction of the center? The short answer is Roger Ailes couldn't control Glenn Beck. In the opening months of the Obama presidency, Glenn Beck's ratings uh, exploded from roughly about a million to uh, over two million. Glenn Beck's no longer on the network. I think Ailes realized that Glenn Beck was becoming the public face of Fox News. He needed to remind both his audience and the rest of the media that Fox News was not Glenn Beck. So this uh, journalism offensive uh, has manifested itself recently in an interview with Republican Mitt Romney in which anchor Brett Baer on health care, having as a governor of Massachusetts instituted a health care program much like Fox boogeyman Obamacare. Do you still support the idea of a mandate? Do you believe that that was the right thing for Massachusetts? Do you think a mandate, mandating people to buy insurance, is the right tool? Uh, Brett, I don't know how many hundred times I've said this too. This is an unusual interview. <laughs> All right, let's do it again. Absolutely, what we did in Massachusetts was right for Massachusetts. I've said that time and time again. Brett Baer told Bill O'Reilly in a subsequent follow-up interview that Romney said he thought his questions were overly aggressive and uncalled for. Now, uh, it's also fascinating to see that Fox News, which is a very difficult institution to penetrate, allowed Howard Kurtz of Newsweek to uh, roam around and interview their producers at a debate in Orlando. And recently, at a Fox News forum in Manhattan, allowed Jim Rutenberg of the New York Times to roam around backstage. And uh, it was another embarrassing moment for the Romney campaign because they tried to shield Romney from uh, the Times reporter. So the front-runner Republican candidate goes into what he thinks is the Citadel and finds out that it is in no way a safe haven. What is Ailes up to? It's important to look at Fox News as a product packaged and sold every day to millions of people. Coming out of the 2010 midterms, Fox News realized that its product was potentially liable for the incendiary rhetoric that was making its way onto the channel and that they needed to rebrand themselves. That is why you are seeing the New York Times allowed to interview Republican primary candidates in a venue that no journalist would get access to. What can go wrong? A lot can go wrong. Fox faces uh, a risk if they push this idea that they are moving to the middle too far. They could alienate their conservative base that has been such a foundation of their rating success. If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow If we make it through December Got plans to be in a warmer town come summertime Maybe even California If we make it through December we'll be fine Getting Congress to act on behalf of the people's interest, especially when it requires members to take a firm stand against the moneyed interests, can't be done by saying pretty please. Congress is a beast. To make it move, you have to whack it with a big stick. Our biggest stick is a riled-up citizenry, and that stick is growing bigger and rileyer every day. 
particularly on issues of corporate arrogance and avarice. As we've seen this year, the American grassroots are catching fire. For example, at January's protest by more than 2,000 people at the Koch Brothers Secret Billionaires Retreat in the California desert, Wisconsin's mass rebellion against Governor Scott Walker's venomous anti-worker legislation, November's resounding 63% vote in Ohio to repeal Governor John Kasich's union-busting law, and, of course, the ongoing Occupy Wall Street revolt. America's citizens' uprising against voracious corporate power is clearly not going away. To the contrary, 76% of the people polled by Heart Research support a constitutional amendment to overturn the Supreme Court's edict that corporations can make unlimited secret donations to buy our elections. The same big majority supports an amendment to make clear that corporations are not people and do not have the rights of humans. Congress is beginning to feel these grassroots rumblers and beginning to move. In the past few weeks, three bills have been introduced in the House and one in the Senate to undo the Supreme Court's damage to our people's democratic rights, including Representative Jim McGovern's bill, H.J. Res. 88, that specifically rejects the fiction that a corporation is a person. As he puts it, people govern corporations, not the other way around. This is Jim Hightower saying, to be part of this big stick of people power, contact www.wethepeoplecampaign.org. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Republican presidential candidates will criticize Barack Obama's record on a number of fronts, like the economy, tax policy, and of course the imminent threat from Hezbollah terrorists in Mexico. No, really. While most politics watchers see the election largely skipping a debate on foreign policy, a New York Times piece on December 7th tried to show how that might not be the case. Unfortunately, what the piece really showed was how corporate campaign journalism doesn't try very hard at fact-checking. The prime example came from a recent Republican debate where several candidates, including apparent frontrunner Mitt Romney, talked about the Hezbollah threat from Latin America. The story suggested that we might hear more of this. Obama is too soft on Islamic terrorists could be, quote, a major thrust of the Republican foreign policy argument, close quote. Now, a journalist who wanted to inform voters might want to explain whether any of this is grounded in reality. The website PolitiFact judged Romney's Hezbollah comments mostly false, pointing out that the claim comes from a paper published by a right-wing think tank and that the evidence gathered of Hezbollah's Latin American activity is mostly related to fundraising. 
You don't get much of a sense of that from the New York Times, though, which tells readers in passing that the Republican candidate's claims, quote, seemed to contrast with a State Department report, close quote. The piece is far more concerned with the political strategy of trying to appeal to some Jewish voters with a message about Obama being soft on Islamic terrorists. That message is a lot easier for Republican candidates to deliver if reporters aren't going to call them out. There's a strange idea floating in some media circles that Fox News Channel is moving away from being a hard right channel in an election year. The evidence, as floated by Newsweek's Howard Kurtz a few months back and repeated recently in a New York Magazine article, is that some Fox anchors have asked tough questions of Republican presidential candidates. As Kurtz had it, grilling the Republican contenders, which pleases the White House, but cuts sharply against the network's conservative image and risks alienating its most rabid right-wing fans, is part of Fox chief Roger Ailes' quiet repositioning of the network. New York Magazine's Gabriel Sherman likewise locates proof that the network plans to tack towards the center for the general election in Fox's, quote, willingness to make GOP candidates sweat in front of their base, close quote. But hold on a second. Inasmuch as Fox anchors have sweated Republican candidates, it hasn't exactly been from the center. Unsurprising, given that the conservative base of the party seems to have questions about the ideological commitment of at least two contenders, Romney and Gingrich. Kurtz even talks about Fox anchors prepping for the Orlando debate with Chris Wallace promising to go after Rick Perry for being too soft on illegal immigration. It's only in the distorted political world occupied by elite media that asking a hard question of a Republican makes you a centrist, even if the question is, why aren't you tougher on immigrants? So there was a private call between uh, Republicans. In fact, it was a Republican National Committee conference call. And a reporter on Yahoo News was accidentally invited to it, which lets us know the mindset of what the Republicans are thinking. It's fantastic. And it turns out that they were strategizing on how to attack President Obama. And, uh, and one of the strategists, Nicholas Thompson, and he's the VP of a polling firm named Terrence Group, said, quote, we're hesitant to jump on board with heavy attacks. Um, he continued to say, there's a lot of people who feel sorry for him. So this is interesting, right? Because they say, don't go after him personally. It doesn't poll well. Uh, Americans think that he is not doing a good job. That's indicated in their polls. But that he's an honest guy who just happened to be caught in a bad situation. Not, maybe not up to the job, but that it, he, does, he has no bad intentions. So if you attack him personally, they don't like that because they, they think that he's a good guy, right? So it's an interesting note that they're saying do not attack him personally, which I'm sure will throw the Rep Republicans off their game a little bit. They'll be like, I don't understand. There's no off button on my attack switch here, which is what all they have in, in the Republican playing field. But then the second part of that quote was also a little devastating. 
you, let me say that again. There's a lot of people who feel sorry for him. And if you're running for president and you got a lot of people who feel sorry for you, I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, they might like you, but if they feel pity for you, that does not bode well for your re-election chances. Now, as we've talked about a million times, Barack Obama is the luckiest politician in the history of mankind, so he might get the gift of having to run against Newt Gingrich, who is disastrous, who today said, hey, you know what, maybe I won't have underage kids working in coal mines. Are you not merciful? So he might get that unbelievable gift of running against that loathsome guy who it's nearly impossible to lose to, you would figure. All right, but Ari Fleischer said something else that was interesting in the call. And if you remember, he was the press secretary for Bush. He said, you know what, we shouldn't let the Democrats characterize Mitt Romney and Newt Gingrich, who are the two leading candidates at this point, as flip-floppers. He said, I don't like playing defense. We need to go on the offense. I'm like, all right, here we go. This sounds like a Republican call, right? And they said, we should uh, say that Obama's a flip-flopper because he is. And then he made a pretty compelling case for it. He said, here are the things that he's flip-flopped on. Opposing tax increases for those making less than $250,000. It's true. Opposing uh, Bush tax cuts. True. He's flip-flopped on all those. He has accepted the Bush tax cuts. People making over $250,000 are getting more money. Opposing uh, raising the debt limit. He raised the debt limit. Opposing a health care mandate. Uh, which was originally a Republican idea, and now he has accepted the health care mandate. And when this news broke, Ari Fleischer, instead of tr trying to deny it, called up Yahoo News and he said, I got more where that came from. He said he also contradicted himself on constitutional rights, condemning Bush uh, on warrantless wiretaps, indefinite detentions, secret renditions, and keeping Gitmo open. He's doing all of those. You know, I'll take Gitmo out of the equation because he tried to... Uh, close Gitmo and the Republicans wouldn't let him. But the rest of the stuff, he voluntarily did exactly what Bush was doing and exactly what he said he wouldn't do. So Ari Fleischer is right about that. And he said giving lobbyists to work at the White House after saying they wouldn't work there, that's also true. Uh, refusing public financing in 2008 after he vowed to accept it, also true. Now, <laughs> so that leaves you with a couple of obvious insights here. Number one, will they go after Obama for being a flip-flopper? You betcha, of course they will, right? Second of all, look at what they're charging him with. Almost every single one of those instances is when Obama, instead of doing his campaign promise, went and did what Republicans asked him to do. Whether it was keeping Gitmo open or the warrantless wiretaps or, or the Bush tax cuts, in every single instance when he said to the Republicans, okay, you win. Now the Republicans in a secret call are saying, ha ha, now we're going to use it against them. Yeah, it's only something that I've been saying for how long now, guys? Three years, eight years, as long as we've been doing the show. If you agree with a Republican, they will use it against you. How do you not know that? And now they're going to say, all the things we president him do, now we're going to call him a flip-flopper. Yeah. But you know what? Obama had it coming. Because... He did flip-flop on those issues, and he did agree with the Republicans when he had no reason to, and he did break his campaign promises. And that's called consequences of breaking your campaign promises. So that's what Obama's got to uh, look forward to in the upcoming campaign. I'm not saying anything you haven't heard before. No one's gonna wait for you. 
Don't wake up anymore Changing all your scenery Saying you don't care You're not going Jim Hightower is with us. He's a syndicated columnist, activist, and author. Great to see you, Jim. Great to be with you, David. So where do we stand right now on corporate personhood? What's the best bet for uh, going back on the legislation? Is it an amendment? Is it a repeal? I mean, where, where are efforts best placed right now? Well, first of all, people think corporate personhood uh, is a perversion, <laughs> not only of the Constitution uh, and our democracy, but uh, of nature itself. Uh, you know, a person has a navel. Uh, where is the corporate navel? That's, I think that's the question we need to be asking. Uh, but uh, this has already uh, become uh, thrust into next year's presidential election uh, since Mitt Romney, uh, at a, standing atop a hay bale at the Iowa State Fair, uh, declared that corporations are people. Uh, and uh, the good news is uh, that the American people do not believe the corporations are persons and they are ready uh, to do what needs to be done to undo this, including a constitutional amendment. And I, I do support that. There are two great groups, uh, freespeechforpeople.org, a coalition, and another coalition, movetoamend.org. And both of those are organizing all across the country at a grassroots level. They've got uh, good video materials, uh, uh, good uh, organizing uh, tips, uh, they've got toolkits for local people to be engaged in this, to get your local city council, your, your state representatives to stand up on this issue of corporate personhood. And again, you know, some people say, well, a constitutional amendment, that, that takes a long time and the odds are against you. Well, you know, it, they are against us, but uh, we have done this before. And this is the biggest fight, I believe, that uh, we've had uh, perhaps since the American Revolution uh, in terms of uh, establishing democratic possibilities in our country. Yeah, and uh, you know, Jim, I know you're much more optimistic than I am on this because when I think about uh, the possibility of campaign finance reform, I think why would the same politicians that are in power because of the status quo ever want to change it? So again, why would politicians who stand to benefit from receiving these corporate donations ever allow any Thing to happen that would maybe put uh, put at risk that possibility. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Well, the thing they have to fear uh, would be the people themselves. Uh, it, there's a poll uh, came out in January, Hart Research poll that found that 87% uh, of Democrats, 82% uh, of Independents, and 68% of Republicans want a constitutional amendment to get corporate money out of politics. We don't have to convince the people of this. We have to organize the people and turn them on to those members of Congress who are protecting their own butts, you know, to uh, to try to keep. Uh, getting that uh, that corporate money. Uh, so no, they're, they're not going to do it on their own. That's why we have to have the We the People campaign, grassroots efforts to get out there and rally public support to insist uh, on this. And that means getting your city council to endorse it, uh, getting your state legislature behind it. We've had to do this in the past. That's what the same freeze uh, approach was back in the 1970s. Neither party in Washington wanted to, to freeze nuclear weapons, uh, but it took the people going to the countryside uh, rallying through uh, their city councils and elsewhere uh, to force them to do that. Uh, so, you know, we can do it. Uh, a friend of mine who's been a 
activist in the uh, organic movement uh, said to me once, those who say it can't be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. No, I agree with you completely. The, the concern I have is, you know, if we look at polls, more than two-thirds of Americans actually, when, when asked in a fair way, not in a push poll, think that we should have uh, government health care, right? We're not even close to even uh, the possibility of having that anytime soon. So just people wanting it isn't enough, right? No, absolutely not. And by the way, that's what this Occupy movement is all about. Uh, a month ago, who would have thought that this was going to burst out across America? More than 600 communities have an Occupy uh, a group uh, within them. Uh, and these folks have already changed the political debate. They, they are forcing uh, members of Congress uh, and, and candidates running for president to have to address this issue of corporate money in politics, corporate uh, abuse of uh, working folks, uh, of our environment, uh, of consumers, uh, of the Constitution itself. So, uh, you know, it, it's not impossible to, to achieve this uh, because people are on the move. This, this Occupy movement uh, is uh, on target and on the move. It might put a little bit of movement in them. Eric Holder, the Attorney General, was actually giving a very good speech at the Library of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he did that in Austin, Texas. And he was talking about voting rights. And he's talking about how they gerrymander districts to make sure that minorities don't get the uh, represent, representation that they need. For example, there's four million new Hispanic voters in Texas, but they've gerrymandered the districts in a way that uh, shuts them out and they don't really have any district that represents them. He's saying these are real civil rights issues and problems, right? Uh, so. And now the Republicans, on the other hand, say, oh, well, well, there's the issue of voter fraud. We had to do things like voter ID laws. We just had to. I know it disenfranchises a lot of people, but that voter fraud is so bad. So now how does the New York Times cover that? That's the interesting part. Well, here's how they described it in a portion of their article. They say, Republicans say they are necessary, referring to the voter ID laws, uh, to prevent voter fraud that could cancel out the choices of legitimate participants. Democrats say there is no evidence of meaningful levels of fraud. Measures are veiled efforts to suppress participation of voters who lean Democratic. Classic mainstream media. Republicans say this, Democrats say that. Well, that's really interesting. So which one is it? Well, they don't tell you that. They don't give you the numbers. Is fraud running rampant? Is it going crazy? I don't know. New York Times didn't tell me. They just told me one side says this, the other side says that. How about uh, voter ID laws? Do they actually disenfranchise people? They don't give you that either. In fact, I'm going to go to B14 here, a, a, a graphic to show you how much it could affect voters. Do you know that a full quarter of African Americans in this country do not have photo ID? So there goes a quarter of African American voters. Well, well they can't vote. Oh, too bad. Ha ha. Hispanics, 16% of them do not have photo ID. Well, look at that. Whites, eight, only 8%. By the way, if you just discounted 8% of the electorate, that would be horrible. But look at how it hits minorities. You think that's an accident? Of course not. That's what the Republicans want to do. They want to disenfranchise voters that might go to Democrats. 
Uh, well, how about voter fraud? That might be horrible, right? Well, let me go to graphic B15 here. Show you the terrible, out of control voter fraud. In Missouri, uh, voter fraud issue happened in, in the election of 2004, 0.0003% of the time. In New York, in 02 and 04 combined, it happened 0.00009% of the time. I'm not sure if I got all those O's right. In Wisconsin, 0.0002% of the time. You see, if you did a fair article, you would say, Republicans say voter fraud is a huge issue, but it turns out they're lying. It's not true at all. It's 0.02% of the problem. It's made up. Well, is, how about the Democrats? Democrats say that you would disenfranchise 3 million people. Is that true? Yes, it's absolutely true. It's been a good week in the crucial campaign to amend our Constitution and finally put corporations in their place. Many in the Occupy movement are taking up the cause. For instance, in L.A. on December 3rd, the General Assembly of Occupy L.A. passed a unanimous resolution calling for a constitutional amendment to end corporate personhood. Three days later, the L.A. City Council also unanimously passed a similar resolution, making it the first major city to do so. And then on Thursday, Senator Bernie Sanders proposed a constitutional amendment entitled the Saving American Democracy Amendment. It states in part that the rights protected by the Constitution of the U.S. are the rights of natural persons and do not extend to for-profit corporations, limited liability companies, or other private entities. It adds... Such corporate and other private entities shall be prohibited from making contributions or expenditures in any election of any candidate for public office. This is the first time that Sanders has introduced an amendment to the Constitution in his two decades in Congress. But the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United versus the FEC forced his hand. There comes a time, he said, when an issue is so important that the only way to address it is by a constitutional amendment. He's absolutely right. This is such a time. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. elections, the national media gave extensive coverage to a proposed personhood amendment to Mississippi's state constitution. This extremist anti-abortion ballot initiative declared that a person's life begins not at birth, but at the very instant that a sperm meets the egg.
However, extending full personhood to two-celled zygotes was too far out even for many of Mississippi's right-wing zealots, so the proposition was voted down. Meanwhile, the national media paid no attention to another personhood vote that took place on that same day. This was a referendum in Missoula, Montana, on a concept even more bizarre than declaring zygotes to be persons with full citizenship rights. It was a vote on overturning last year's democracy-killing decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in the now infamous Citizens United case. A narrow five-man majority of the court had decreed that abracadabra, lifeless, soulless corporations are henceforth persons with human political rights. Moreover, said the five, these tongueless entities must be allowed to speak by dumping unlimited sums of their corporate cash into our election campaigns, thus giving them a far bigger voice than us real-life persons. Missoulians, of course, cannot single-handedly overrule the Supremes, but they can be in the forefront of a grassroots movement demanding a constitutional amendment to reverse the court's perverse ruling. And that's just what Missoulians did, with a whopping 75% of voters calling on Congress to send such an amendment to the states for prompt ratification. This is Jim Hightower saying, hey, we can all be Missoulians. People in California, Colorado, Maine, Vermont, Wisconsin, and elsewhere are pushing such resolutions. For information on how to get your city and state to join in this call, go to wethepeoplecampaign.org slash toolkit. Is the problem that the immediate problem you face, though, that because of the decision, corporations could spend endless amounts of money advertising against the constitutional amendment designed to keep them from spending endless amounts of money? <laughs> I think that that's part of it. Mm -hmm. What goes on in the real world of the United States Senate, Keith, and why this decision is so terribly dangerous, is that a member walks up to the desk to cast a vote. And if this vote is dealing with Wall Street, if it's dealing with drug companies, if it's dealing with the military-industrial complex, that senator has got to say, if I vote against the big money interest, will I go home next week and find millions of dollars in campaign ads coming from these very same mm -hmm. entities against me? So to answer your question, I think what Citizens United has done is struck fear in the hearts of every elected official that if they stand up and fight for the working class, for the middle class, for justice, they're going to get punished in an unlimited way. The idea that a handful of people, billionaires, corporate leaders, can sit around a room and decide to spend 50 million in California or 20 million in Ohio, man, what a blow to democracy that is. So what is there to do in the interim? Because obviously this is not a constitutional amendment does not occur overnight. Legislation, right. protests, what, what do you think is first uh, ahead of that uh, long-term well, decision? Well, I think what is first is that the American people have got to make it clear to their elected officials 
uh, that Citizens United has got to go, and a constitutional amendment is the way to do that. Uh, we have put up a petition on my uh, website, sanders.senate.gov, and i got to tell you, Keith, in one day, one day, we have 45,000 signatures. Excellent. All right? And what we have got to do is get people on the phone, get on, the, on their emails, and alert their members of Congress that Citizens United is, is not what America is about. Who needs to speak up publicly about this who has not? Is there anybody that you can point to and say, we need your voice? Well, we need everybody's voice from the President of the United States on down. Uh, I have so far Mark Bagich uh, as a co-sponsor of mine. We're looking forward to having more senators in the House. We need more and more people. We need some brave Republicans. There are a lot of conservatives out there who certainly will disagree with virtually everything that I stand for. But they understand that in a democratic society, a handful of corporations cannot be allowed to spend, as you've just indicated, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to elect the candidates they want or to defeat other candidates. So there is widespread opposition to this concept of Citizens United. We need Republicans to come forward, independents, progressives, Democrats. We need people to begin to stand up and say, enough is enough. Hi, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City here. By now, probably most of uh, your listeners have, have heard that Rocky Anderson, former mayor of Salt Lake City, is running for president. Uh, he's creating a new party called the Justice Party. I know it's been kind of a point of contention on your show as to whether or not we need to be challenging Barack Obama, but I'm of the opinion that we do. And any of your listeners who uh, share that opinion... Uh, I'd encourage you to support Rocky Anderson and the Justice Party. Rocky was a great mayor, one of the uh, arguably most liberal cities in the uh, country. I know it's kind of surprising, but Salt Lake City proper is a very liberal city. And Rocky's a great, it was a great mayor, and he's a great liberal voice. He's not afraid to speak out, and I think it would be great if we could find someone to inject some real debate into the uh, quote-unquote debate. So uh, please consider consider Rocky Anderson and the Justice Party. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So tonight, uh, I'm going to tell you about a movie I just saw. Some of you will recall that I, I announced a a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, that I was going to start a monthly progressive get-together dinner and a movie sort of event here in my neighborhood of uh, Lakeview in North Chicago. And uh, so we had our first event. It's, they're going to be on the second, uh, second Tuesday of every month. If you are in the neighborhood and want to join in the coming months, the I, I will put the link to the meetup.com group that we've created. I think that's going to be the best way to organize everyone. So I said to the general audience, you know, the vast majority of which aren't in or around Chicago, that even though I'm going to mention the meetup every once in a while, I'll make it up to you by telling you about the movie I saw. So, uh, so we went and saw Martha Marcy May Marlene. That is the name of the movie. It's an independent flick. 
and uh, so it was good, first of all. And it's about you know I'm I'm not giving anything away. A young woman is she escapes from a cult, an abusive cult. I mean they're kind of all abusive, but uh, she escapes from an, an abusive cult and then deals with the aftermath of that. There are a couple of aspects I want to highlight about this. The first is that she escaped, first of all. So she recognized to it to enough of a degree that there was something wrong with the cult that she had to escape. But simultaneously, after escaping, there were a couple of, you know, real stark instances in the movie where she, you know, refers to their teachings and kind of defends their either their way of life or their, or their philosophy. And so there's this interesting conflict between knowing the cult is wrong, but still really hanging on to uh, those ideas and defending them. And so that sparked a conversation uh, between a friend of mine and I. He, you know, he was there at the movie, and he sent me an email afterwards saying, you know, I think it might this might have had something to do with uh, Stockholm syndrome. That might have been what the movie was kind of touching on. And Stockholm syndrome is classically where a person is taken captive, and then you know, through a weird psychological phenomenon, they come to defend their captors and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, align themselves with the captors. So that's really interesting. And, and my first thought was like, oh yeah, you know, that's, that is kind of what this is. And then I realized that there's a nuanced difference, which is that in, in the case of the cult, no one was taken captive. Everyone, you know, voluntarily joined the group and then had their mind kind of twisted and, and, poisoned in that uh, circumstance. So uh, so I, I responded to, to uh, this friend and you know I, I wrote it better than I could say it now. So I'm just going to read you what I wrote. And I, I said that kind of an odd comparison popped to mind that the, the situation of the girl is almost like, for lack of a, a better term for it, almost like brand loyalty. So I say, People make decisions in their lives to support certain things, i.e. Democrats, Apple computers, Chicago Bears, etc., and they allow those affiliations to define who they are as a person. Therefore, if you denounce a political party or a computer maker, you're likely to get sharp rebuttals from supporters of those institutions because you're not just attacking something someone likes, you're attacking what the people see as part of themselves. And then in reference to the girl and the cult, because she sees the aspect of the cult as aspects of herself for having chosen to join them. And people always defend themselves. And so basically, you know, people, you know, I believe not only you are what you eat, I believe that is true. I also believe that you are what you think. You are what you believe that effectively makes up who you are as a person. And so, you know, I, I think that people kind of strive to get a better grasp of their identity by affiliating themselves with outside entities, I mean, outside of your own mind, who they agree with in some sense. So if it's a political party, that's pretty clear, you know, if you're vaguely uh, progressively minded then and the Democrats are vaguely progressively minded, then you will gravitate towards them and a lot of people will affiliate themselves with the Democrats and, you know, we can get into all sorts of psychological uh, thoughts about why people choose the computer manufacturer they do. You get the idea. So I think that this is not the best way to go about it because let's say for a second you don't do that. You have your own thoughts and opinions and beliefs. They make up who you are as a person 
and then you find these outside entities who share a certain degree of your uh, thoughts and beliefs, and you recognize it as just that. It's like, oh, well, they agree with some of the things I like, and I appreciate them for that, but I don't see, you know, I don't, I don't affiliate myself with them in any way. I don't need to put like an Apple sticker on my car or anything, even if I like Apple, if, if that's the case. If you don't adopt it as part of your personality, then you will never be asked to defend anything other than your own ideas. And your own ideas are malleable. You know, I have a patented two-step process to always being right, which comes into play at this moment, which is step one, whenever possible, be right. And step two, if you ever find yourself not being right, simply change your mind. And so if you're asked to defend uh, you know, an opinion of yours that turns out to be wrong, well, then it's really easy to fix that. You just change your mind and then you don't have anything to defend anymore. Whereas if you affiliate yourself, and I think the majority of the time this happens subconsciously, and if you affiliate yourself with an outside entity because you think that they uh, you know, share your beliefs, when that outside entity does something indefensible, you will, you will have the instinct to defend them. And here's why. Uh, and I'm making this up as I go along for the most part, but I've thought about it a little bit. I think this is true. So when, when an outside entity who you affiliate yourself with does something good, that makes you feel good because you think, oh yeah, that person who I support, I love that I chose to support those people or that group or that entity because it reinforces the idea that my choosing to affiliate myself with them and support them was correct and I like being correct. And so if they do the opposite and they do something bad, well, that makes you feel bad because you don't, you don't want for the things that you support to do bad things. And so instead of just feeling bad, because people don't like to feel bad, so you have to figure out a way to feel less bad. So you think, oh, well, it probably wasn't that bad. Whatever they did, I'm sure it wasn't as bad as they're saying. I'm sure they had a good reason for it. And then you end up defending something outside of yourself which doesn't, you know, you don't actually have a connection to them. You know, if it's a computer company or something, if you're talking about your spouse or whatever, maybe that's a different situation. But you end up defending needlessly an outside entity who may not in that circumstance deserve to be defended. So what I suggest is not putting yourself in the position of pinning your identity to anything outside your own head. And you'll completely avoid ever having the instinct to defend something that doesn't deserve it like a cult or a political party. So there you go. Those are my thoughts. Uh, you know, political parties and uh, computer manufacturers are basically like cults is what I'm saying. Uh, and, and I know I know how much some of you are going to love that, especially the references to Apple because fans of Apple are often referred to as a, as a cult. And I will say for full disclosure that not only have I used a Mac for the last several years, but I actually credit Apple with the existence of Best of the Left, because I feel uh, like when I bought my first Apple computer and it came with the audio editing software GarageBand built into it, that was the impetus I needed to start playing around with it and and it made this show possible. And I guarantee, I mean, the, the chances of me having made this show without having bought that computer, I think are incredibly low. So that's where I'm coming from but I still don't think of myself as a you know, Mac cult member or anything like that. 
So that's going to be it for today. I know this show went long, so I'm going to just say uh, thanks to everyone for their support of the show. Stay tuned in between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always available in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in